hope in this life only, we are only, we are all, I'm sorry, we are all of, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised. He has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have been, who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, um, as, I'm sorry, but, excuse me, I'm sorry. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. Then he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are, being, are not being raised, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ, uh, Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this, to your shame. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. Well, thank you for your patience as I stumble through a couple portions of that. I got ahead of myself sometimes when I read, and I appreciate your patience in that. Well, we're, we're continuing our study here in 1 Corinthians. We are just a few weeks away from putting the capstone on this series uh, of, of uh, sermons through this um, letter we've been walking through for a little over a year now. And uh, we, today we turn to the importance of the resurrection. The importance of the resurrection. Nothing could be probably more important for us this morning, especially as we lean in now to uh, Easter Sunday to consider the resurrection for this Sunday and next Sunday and, and ask about the importance of it. And thinking about the importance of it, I want to ask you guys, how many of you guys like the game Jenga? Yeah? Anyone? Jenga? Like, I like the game Jenga. I like games like Jenga because I like a puzzle. I like to figure out a puzzle. I like to figure out how I can beat the puzzle. The puzzle typically beats me, especially in Jenga. Somebody eventually has to lose Jenga. In fact, there are no winners to Jenga. You know that, right? There's just a loser, which is great for your confidence, by the way. And uh, so there's, like, there's no real game. Like you're a bunch of people around this tall stack of you know, pieces, three and inverted on top of each other, and then you start removing the pieces, and then eventually, at some point, someone has to make that critical decision that removes the one piece that finally completely destroys the integrity of this structure. So if you're an engineer, you know what I'm talking about. Like, this is why engineers matter, right, in life, because they do the hard work of making sure we have all the fundamental things that we need when it comes to building structures, houses, whatnot. Well, in the same way that structural integrity matters to a building or to any type of structure we might build, when it comes to the resurrection, I can't think of something more fundamental to the structure of Christianity. And if we were to remove the resurrection from the proverbial Jenga 
of Christianity, the whole thing would fall in on itself, would it not? And so today what I want to talk about for a few minutes from this text we just read is a Christian faith without the resurrection ceases to be the Christian faith at all. A Christian faith without the resurrection ceases to be a Christian faith at all. And particularly if you try to continue to be Christian or speak as if you're a Christian, it's not worth beholding. This is kind of what Paul is getting at here in these few verses we were going to walk through this morning. So let's do a quick, again, quick review as we always do each week because we're, we're centered in on trying to take the whole text and build the whole context as we walk through this letter and seeing how Paul is building his argument. And so Paul's returning here at the end of this letter to that central, um, uh, most cardinal of doctrines called the gospel. He began with the gospel, then he goes into a litany of other issues that are plaguing this church in Corinth, and now he's returning back to the gospel. And the reason he's returning back to the gospel is he's, he's reminding this church that the gospel is all they have. It's the very foundation, it's the very anchor of everything they are. And so if there's any help or any hope for them as they look into the future of and growing as a healthy church, it has to go back to regrounding, routinely regrounding themselves um, in this uh, work of the gospel. That's the only way to deal with the multi-layered issues that have continued to plague this dear church. And so here in verses 12 through 34, Paul is going to continue on that same foundation he's kind of ending his letter on, but he's putting his finger, and dare I say, on the issue, right? The issue that is likely the linchpin underneath which all of the things that are problems in Corinth are. And is, there is this issue of, do you get the resurrection life? Do you understand how important the resurrection is to you? Is it just something that you ethereal believe about Jesus? Or is the resurrection something much more than that? The central issue to the Christian life is that we, can, is that, is that we, we recognize that the resurrection is at the very center of it. Otherwise, it ceases to be Christian at all. And so Paul states it plainly there in his first couple of verses, verses 12 and 13. We can read them again. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So just think about what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying you are preaching Christ has risen, church, Corinthian church. But you are saying that's kind of where it ends. There is no resurrection of life. That doesn't apply to the rest of the Christian life anyway. So there's no resurrection for you and I. That's kind of the issue that Paul's putting his finger on here. Um, and so he says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, so he inverts it, then, then, then there's not even, then not even Christ has been raised. What's the point of even Christ being raised if ultimately there's no benefit to us of his resurrection for us who are in Christ? So, what does he then conclude? Your, vain is in, your, your, your faith is in vain. Your preaching is in vain, which we'll get to more here in a moment. See, this problematic dichotomy that's going on in this Corinthian church where they're kind of parsing out what the resurrection is versus, okay, I believe Jesus was resurrected, but that's kind of a one-off thing. And they're then denying that there's a resurrection reality in the life of the Christian is probably the real issue that continues to help keep continues to drive them towards sin keeps continuing to drive them towards all this dysfunction in the church why let me try to help set the context of what's going on in their particular uh, society these are this church is is, is founded in a greco-roman context 
The culture there was very philosophical, and one of the, the undergirdings of Roman uh, philosophy was Gnosticism. Gnosticism basically separates the physical world from the spiritual world. And so for them, they couldn't make these two things meet. Okay, fine, I believe Jesus rose from the grave, but he's God. But in certainly that doesn't mean anything else for the Christian life. And so what these people who are preaching the gospel are doing is they're still bringing in this Greco-Roman philosophy, this Gnostic philosophy into their, their, their Christian faith, and therefore they're truncating the gospel. They're minimizing the gospel. They're lessening the power of the gospel in their own lives. And therefore, we go back to all the stuff we've been reading about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, all the way through chapter 14. All of it goes back to those things. But for the Christian, and this is what Paul's going to emphasize here, for the Christian, Christian, like our faith espouses the goodness of creation, right? That's what we see from Genesis 1, that all things are good. Even in sin, and it's broken in sin, all creation is a good thing. God himself, there is no fundamental distinction between the spirit realm and the uh, in, the, in, the, in the physical realm, right? In the material realm. Like God creates all things good and he himself infuses it with his spirit. This is what we see early on in the, in the Bible. This is something that's fundamental. So we don't believe that there, there's, there's two separate realities. And so think about what that means for the Corinthian church or the Greco-Roman culture versus a Christian interpretation. Death for the culture is what? It's escape. It's escape from this physical prison I'm living in so that I can give me my true self freed from all the entanglements of the physical body. Now, does that not sound familiar to us today? Isn't this exactly kind of what's undergird? Do you see how we're kind of going right back to Rome, right? Well, that's kind of what's happening here. And so they see themselves, see this as, as death as a freeing of themselves from the, from the bondage of the material realm. But Christian says, no, Death is a foreign antigen that corrupts. It corrupts the physical realm, but it was but God Himself from, from, from the time He created, created a good world where His people would dwell in spirit and it would glorify God. That's what the realm is supposed to be. Revelation 21 tells us that death, it, that, that at the end of time when Jesus returns, it's not going to be a utter destruction of the, of the material realm, but it's going to be a restoration of all things. A new heavens and new earth where God's people will dwell with him forever, worshiping him forever and ever. So the core issue at play in this particular church, and frankly, friends, in the life of the modern church, if we'll pay attention, is that we're, they were holding on to a lifeless gospel that offers them no real hope. It's a gospel that simply is ethereal as it looks to Christ's resurrection for something maybe just merely symbolic but doesn't actually hold out any real tangible, life-changing benefit for you and I. The Christian life is a life of growth in our, but the Christian life is a really, in, in its own essence, when we get back to the core of it, is a life of growth and flourishing and shalom or peace recovery in our life. That's given to us through the resurrection. That's why the resurrection matters. So sadly, as we see in this letter, the Corinthian church had embraced this hybrid view of pulling a little bit from Rome in their Greco-Roman culture, trying to staple on in the gospel, staple on their Christian faith into these things. We call this syncretism, okay? 
It's not a big word. I know it sounds like a big word, but it's really not all that. It's just a dashing a little bit of this and a dashing a little bit of that. And they're kind of make this new kind of thing. And Paul's saying, that's not Christianity at all. In fact, you've lessened the gospel in some sense in your life. One of the books that I found, I've been rereading the last couple of weeks, Fleming Crew, is called Christianity and Liberalism. It's a classic by J. Gresham Mason. It's one of those things that I think every Christian should read through at some point in their life. It's not a very big book, but it was written during the turn of the century, not turn the uh, turn of the 20th century during the World Wars, and right during the height of Protestant liberalism. And here he makes the argument of the difference between Protestant liberalism, meaning Christian liberals, who are who, and the difference between genuine Christianity. And he basically makes the argument, he makes it correctly, that it's not Christianity at all. It's a whole other religion that kind of staples Jesus into it. Well, friends, doesn't that sound a whole lot of what's going on here in Corinth? Does it not sound like a whole lot of what we see sometimes today among some of our friends who are trying their best, giving them the best read, they want to hold out the Christian faith, but then they're so altering the Christian faith that they're offering that they're not actually offering them any Christian faith at all. They're not offering the gospel at all. And so what we're going to do here for the next few minutes is unpack this text. And what we're going to see is Paul, re, uh, he's rebuffs this deficient, resurrection-less gospel, and he does it in three ways. Let me just give you the headline, give it to you real quick. One, he's going to show how pitiful a resurrectionless gospel actually is. We'll talk about that in point one. Second point was where he's going to show how priceless the gospel resurrection of Christ actually is in living color for you and I as believers. And then he's going to come back and he's going to give us some exhortations on how to recover the resurrection life in three different, three critical ways. So let's see if we can mine this out this way. First of all, I want us to consider four pitiable realities if Christ is not raised. Four pitiable realities if Christ is not raised. We see this in verses 14 through 19. I won't reread it, but the first thing we see there is in verse 14, our preaching if, there's a re- if we believe in a resurrectionless gospel, our preaching and our faith, Paul says, is in vain. Read what it says right there. Then your preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. There's nothing more sad when, than when someone preaches something that at the end is uh, assessed as vain. To be vain is to be empty. To not have the substance of what it is. A vain gospel leads to a weak gospel, which then leads to a vain pursuit of side issues that ultimately distract us from the core beauty of the gospel. This is exactly what we've seen in the Corinthian church. They're so enamored by all these side issues that we've been dealing with in this, in this letter, that's because at the end of the day, they've been holding on to a weak gospel a vain gospel a gospel that's not true to what has been passed down to them by paul and sadly this happens often in the christian life it's happened often in church history we get sidetracked by pet concerns we get sidetracked by pet ideologies that we kind of sort of end up stapling the gospel to and we make that the gospel hope of our lives And you guys can think of all kinds of ways we do this in the American evangelical experience. I don't have to give you a list. You know what that list is. But we do this even in some parts of our own more Reformed or Baptistic Protestant world sometimes as well. And what Paul is going to do here at the very end of this text is saying, wake up. Wake up by your drunken stupor. Wake up with your distraction by all these side issues and get back to the gospel. Get back to the resurrection. 
get back to that church. Friends, if we have a hope for this church's future, it's going to have to always come back to regrounding ourselves in the resurrection life that has been ours. We have inherited in Christ. And we're going to talk about what that looks like here in just a few moments. But it is ours. And so, friends, this is what we've seen in 1 Corinthians. We've seen a church that confesses Christ, a church that confesses the resurrection of Christ, but has a truncated view of that, and it's pushed the church into all these secondary, pietistic, personal growth pursuits, societal reform initiatives that we just have stapled the gospel onto. The church at Corinth has been placing their hopes in so many worldly concerns. And again, I, I want to keep on using it. They're stapling gospel fruit to it that's going to just rot. And they were neglecting the primary hope of their life, the resurrection. Without the resurrection from the dead, as fundamental to the Christian view, brothers and sisters, to our new identity and hope, the center of our faith just becomes hollow. Again, that's what vain means, hollow empty. And so that's the first thing Paul deals with. That's the first pitiable reality of a resurrectionless gospel. The second pitiable reality is that we actually become blasphemous, right? Our declaration, our preaching is blasphemy. Look what it says there in um, verse, verse 15, for we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he, ra- he, was, raised from Christ, he was raised Christ and when he uh, when whom he did not raise, if it is true that the, the, um, that the resurrection from the dead, I'm sorry, if the dead are not raised. So when we preach a powerless gospel, we misrepresent God. That's Paul's idea here. Paul is saying that if the resurrection is not true, and yet we preach a resurrection of Christ, we're actually saying something untrue about God. And that's what we call a truncated gospel we end up preaching. And friends, let me just say this as bold and frank as I can. There is nothing more damnable to do with our lives than preach a message that misrepresents God. And there's too many churches that are just tinkering around with all these little side issues. And they're not keeping God at the center, his character, his nature, his accomplishments through his son, Jesus. Um, You will remember that one of the prized roles in the Corinthian church was this role of a a rhetorician, a rhetoric, right? Someone who does public speaking. They they loved this guy. When someone had that skill, they loved it, and it was super influential. They loved compelling speakers. And this became kind of the, 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 the kind of core of how you kind of built up your reputation in society. It didn't matter if the person was saying anything true. It, what it mattered is if they could convince them of what, to, what they were saying. Now, friends, that, again, doesn't that sound very familiar today in our modern moment, whether it's politics or not? It really doesn't matter if what they're saying is true. It's just, can I convince you, that you to believe, me what I, believe what I tell you? That's the Corinthian church and the Corinthian church's culture. And, but the church does not have to, is not part of this. Paul is not interested in refuting a, uh, a, someone's rhetorical skill. He's not interested in the value of a faith proclaimed at Corinth that actually in the end has no truth as its foundation. He's saying, no, 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 tear that down and let's rebuild it back on the gospel. Let's rebuild it back on the resurrection because truth matters. Again, shameless plug, this book is fantastic. It's been so good and so nourishing to my own uh, reflections over these last few weeks. 
But it's, it's not that it's just that we misrepresent God. It even gets worse than that. Paul says in his third pitiable reality of a resurrectionless gospel is that we're still very much in our sins. That is the most discouraging thing if we have a resurrectionless gospel. This is the most serious of the issues if indeed the gospel is not the reality in the Christian life. If Christ died and he was resurrected, but that has, that has, that were, and, and that is at the end of the resurrection life, if that's the beginning and the end of it, then what does that do for our situation? Well, the only answer is what? Nothing. A gospel that does not extend beyond the, the, beyond Jesus' day, but all it just is just some kind of ethereal reality, that's not the resurrected life that we are promised that Paul teaches about in all of his letters in various ways. No. For Paul and for the Christian church who's been holding on to this message for, for, for centuries is a salvation from death without a salvation to new life is an oxymoron. A salvation from death Without a salvation to new life is an oxymoron. Paul's like, you don't know what you're preaching. It's not a real gospel. It's a thin gospel. If Christ died just to ethereally or symbolically save us, but it actually doesn't bring new life into the very dead, lifeless bodies that we are and souls that we are, we are still trapped in our sins. That's why the resurrection matters. And then he gives us one more. He pulls on our heartstrings a little bit here this morning. Even our loved ones who've passed on before us, and I'm going to be frank here, they're still rotting in the grave. They have died, not just physically, but they're dead spiritually because there is no resurrection. This is what Paul says. And this is, this is, this is discouraging. He gets personal. He plucks at those heartstrings. Those who precede us in death, well, they're still in the grave, decaying. What hope do we have for our grief when grandpa passes on at a ripe old age or when a son and daughter is taken tragically out of time by a tragic accident of some sort or when cancer eats up a spouse's insides and we watch them die a slow and painful death or if a stepdad, in my case, shows signs of early onset Alzheimer's in his late 50s, and he's gone by the time he's in his mid-60s, how do I deal with that? I can't. Because there is no hope for the person who's went to the grave. But Jesus, because of the resurrection, the resurrection life that's in us, and what Paul is trying to help recover here, I do have hope. I do have hope. And that's what we're going to get into in this second section. He's done with considering all of the ridiculous, pitiable realities that happen if we don't believe in the resurrection. He's tired of talking about this. And now he spends verses 20 through 28 saying, but in fact, Christ has been raised. In fact, Christ has been raised. In other words, invert everything we just talked about. The death of your loved one who has went to the grave in Christ, they will have a new body one day resurrected. The, 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 the sin that you have struggled with all your life and you're still struggling with, but you're still trying to lay before the Lord, that is saved and redeemed because of the resurrection life. This is all true 
for those of us. And so what he gives us here in this second point, verses 20 through 28, is two priceless realities because Christ is raised. The first priceless reality is, it's the inverse of the whole still in our sins, is death has been destroyed. Death has been destroyed. Verses 21 and 22, I'm sorry, verses 21 through 23, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then, his com- then after his coming, those who belong to Christ. This is the reality of those of us who believe and trust in the resurrection life. Death actually has been destroyed. Sin, sin's reign has been broken because of what Christ has accomplished. We mentioned earlier the Christian understands death as this foreign antigen. That means it's not, supposed, it's not the way God created. We're not to experience death. Death is not an escape from this reality into a spiritual realm where we float around like little angels in a spiritual state all of for all eternity. No, that's not the picture that we get from Scripture. No, what we get from Scripture is that in Adam, he's our a representative head, we are all plunged into sin and we are living under the, under, the, under the judgment of God. But in Christ, we now live under a new representative, freed from Adam's sin, freed from his, his representation, to now live under a new representative head in Christ. Christ the Son came to reverse that which was accomplished by the first Adam. He is the second Adam. He reverses the curse of sin and death. This reversal is accomplished by his death and resurrection. Not just his death, his death and resurrection. And that resurrection is applied to us, though, in some ways, as we live in this intermediate state, we are not fully resurrected. We all know this. We still know that we live in a state of uh, of remaining sin. And so we need to do a little bit of work here, don't we? Like, to what degree do you and I know, believe that the resurrection is still applied to us today? Well, let's talk about that for a second. See, Christ's resurrection is the reference point by which we understand the resurrection that is to come at the end of the age. And so for you and I as believers, we recognize that that's where our ultimate hope of resurrection comes. When Jesus returns, all the the bodies that we are now living in broken, whether it be sin physically or whatnot, we're going to be resurrected. And all those who went to the grave before us in Christ will be resurrected from the dead. But what about now? What happens now? Well, Christ is the first fruits of that of those who've fallen asleep and those who are living now until that day comes when that resurrection happens. But, and you know I love this word, Christ's resurrection is the inauguration point for you and I right now that points us to that harvest of promised resurrection for those of us who are in Christ. And so what does that mean? That means though we are yet to be fully resurrected, the role of spirit in us that dwells within us, in this particular time space, as we live in this time, listen, live in this, this state with remaining sin, the Spirit lives within us and gives us a foretaste of resurrection. A foretaste of that is yet to come. This means our life today, though not finally resurrected, still struggling and plagued by certain elements of sin, is not a life lived without consequence. 
It means now you don't just give in to sin, but because of the Holy Spirit living within you, you can live the resurrected life now and progressively so until Jesus returns. That you and I can't just artificially staple hope to our lives in all kinds of ways, but that the resurrection that is to come, and we look to it because of what Christ's resurrection, the Spirit lives within us and says, now you may live. Brothers and sisters, you may live now with the Spirit in you. And you can begin to see, you can see the, the freedom from sin in your life, just like the freedom and sin of people who've gone before us. We live knowing that death is defeated and Satan is bound even as sin remains. At the resurrection, death will be utterly destroyed by Jesus and Christ will defeat his enemies and both victory for the believing and the judgment for the unbelieving will be fully consummated. And that's where our hope lies. That's what we look to because Jesus was raised. And the Spirit's the one who brings all that together for us. That's why, the Pentecost, that's why the day of Pentecost matters for us. But then he gives us this second part, this second priceless reality, that the rule and reign of Christ is put on glorious display now. Because of Christ's resurrection, you and I can live under the headship, under the rule, under the reign of Jesus in this moment, waiting on that day when he returns again. Like Christ's resurrection, his lordship and his reign are put on glorious display because of his resurrection and his ascension. He, is every, he in every way is working and putting things into order in this present time, and he does so by the will of the Father and in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. And that, friends, is how you and I hang on. So we're going to do a series after Easter called The Gospel Gets You All the Way Home. And we're going to walk through Romans 8 together. And we're just really going to unpack what that means. How we live in this moment, this season, as we wait upon Jesus and how the gospel gets us all the way home. So I don't want to, I want to tease that just a little bit as we prepare for that after Easter. We'll do it for about six or so weeks. So what we find here is a clear picture of what Christ is doing now, post-resurrection, post-ascension, to bring about the final resurrection under his rule and reign. So he's ruling and reigning now. Now, the world may not recognize that. The world may be blind to it. The moral world may reject it, but that doesn't make him any less ruler because he has defeated death. And we can live, because he has a defeated death, live now in confidence in that with the spirit residing in us, and we do not have to be slaves to sin. Unfortunately, the Corinthian church was continually allowing themselves to be slaves to sin. And again, I'll say it to you what Paul's going to say at the end of this passage. Stop being drunk in sin. Stop being, having excuses for sin. So then he ends this passage, 29 through 34, with three exhortations for living the resurrection life. Again, I won't read that passage outline, but we'll just kind of pick him up as we go through. But Paul does something here in verse 29. He references this being baptized on behalf of the dead. It's kind of an interesting phrase here, and I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, this is one of those things that, man, theologians like debate about a lot. There is no less than 29 different views among evangelicals about this particular text. So I do not have time to give you 29 different views of this text, and I know you're going to give me a hearty amen for that. But I do think it does come down to a couple of 
Uh, really, honestly, something very simple, and I think Anthony Thistleton, a commentator I read on this, probably gets down to the core of it. And I also want to say this, no matter really where you land on some of those different views, it doesn't change the intent of Paul's message here because he still gets in these exhortations about suffering and about fleeing sin and whatnot. So it really doesn't change it. But I just want you to understand, like, Paul, they're likely not talking about here baptism of the, on the behalf of the dead. It may have been. It may have been that the Corinthian church was really that wacko, right? And we know that they were kind of that way anyway. But Paul doesn't speak negatively about it. He just kind of references this being baptized on behalf of the dead. But I think Anthony Thistleton probably does about the best job. And here's, he says something to the effect, this is like probably a desire of someone to be baptized because they've witnessed the remarkable life change in someone else's life on the deathbed. Something like that. I think that's probably the most reasonable way to read this. I might be wrong, and that's okay. I'm willing to be wrong uh, on this one. But I think he makes the most compelling argument here. And I'll tell you the reason why he makes that argument. Number one is because Paul doesn't speak negatively about this baptism of the dead or baptism on behalf of the dead. He doesn't necessarily speak positively of either. He just kind of references it. He's using it as a reference point to make his, his exhortations. But I think it's important that what we, what, he, what we understand here is that Paul's not, he's just kind of referencing this idea, and so he never speaks you know, negatively or positively about it. Um, but the second reason is, is that he transitions into suffering right after this. If the dead are not raised, why would you even embrace suffering? And then he goes into his exhortations. So it seems to me probably the more reasonable of those, the one that I think, and it's probably one of the most widely held uh, interpretations of this text, is that this is probably someone who's been compelled, I need to be baptized because I want what that person has. I saw the way they went into glory. I want that. Now, I want to tell you right now, I hope that can be my testimony one day of my death. I pray it could be the testimony of your death. That someone sees in those last moments of your life, those last breaths, they just see your eyes aglow waiting for glory. And someone says, I got to have that. Okay? Again, maybe that's not the intent of it. I don't know. But I don't think that's the main point of this text. He says, why would you baptize in any shape or form if at the end of the day you're still like... And, and, so why would you do that? And why would you embrace suffering? And why would you do the other things? So... He gives three exhortations. And look what he says there in verses 30 through 32. He says, um, let me find my space here. Why are, you, why are we in danger in every hour? So why, why would you baptize on behalf of the dead You know, when we're in danger? Why would we be in danger every hour if the resurrection is not true? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. So what's Paul getting at here? Well, Paul states negatively what I'm going to state positively. He says, why are we in danger every day? I think Paul was really trying to say, imply positively, we can embrace the danger and risk of the gospel every day because the resurrection is true. This is why missionaries do what they do. This is why people go and, 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 they, and they go and they share the gospel in, in, in difficult contexts. This is why people remain, they stand true on their faith even when the culture shifts on things. They embrace the risk of it. Why would you embrace the risk of the gospel for a gospel that has no power of the resurrection? That's what Paul's getting at. 
Why would you baptize? Or why would you guys even practice baptism when at the end of the day, Paul talks about baptism in Romans. And baptism is a what? It's, a, it's identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Why would you do that? It seems kind of silly for you to do that. So what Paul is calling them to consider is that since the resurrection is true, it's worth the risk. It's worth the suffering. It's worth it all. But because the resurrection, and because the resurrection is true, I am willing to risk it all for you, my brother Jesus, Paul is saying. I die every day for you. I'm willing to... I, and he did, didn't he? He gave up his reputation. He oftentimes would not take a salary from the churches he served at because he didn't want it to be a hindrance to the gospel. He, he, he worked tireless hours trying to provide for himself, but also tireless hours preaching the gospel. He went into places where the religious leaders wanted to hang him and kill him, escaping out of windows and all kinds of crazy stuff. He was willing to risk it all. Why would, why would Christians, why all the Christians that go before you, Corinthian church, why all the Christians that have gone before us, Grace Church, why would he do it, why would he risk all that for a resurrectionless gospel? A powerless gospel. He says there, if that's the case, just eat, just drink. We're going to die tomorrow. But I think it's fair to ask when you see a tech, when you see a phrase like that, if you wonder if many professing Christians live exactly that way, don't we? We just eat, we just drink, and we're preparing for death. And Paul's saying, no. A resurrection life compels us and allows us to, man, to give our lives for something greater than us. But then he gives us the second exhortation. Be vigilant with the company we keep. He says there, uh, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, I know we all love that. Probably our granny probably told us that at some point, right? Um, good, bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the company of fools will suffer harm. Paul is just telling them, listen, the reason you're in this sad state of affairs is because you're keeping bad company. You're listening to bad voices. These people are not helping you. They are nothing, they're doing nothing but causing confusion for the gospel hope that you say you proclaim, and they're mixing all kinds and all sorts of worldly wisdom into that, and you need to flee that. You need to run from that. And brothers and sisters, we need to do the same thing. Uh, speaking to our teenagers here, you are, you, you are ripe in a world right now where the, where, the, where, the, where the messages that are sent to you through... Every medium that's at your disposal, whether it be your TVs or your phones or even in different places, you need to be careful with the company you keep. I posted an article yesterday that I found very helpful on the, they call it the uh, dopamine culture. We live in a dopamine culture. And the dopamine culture has one goal in mind, addiction. Because the dopamine culture distracts us from the things we don't want to deal with. And so we need to flee the dopamine culture. The bad company corrupts good morals. And sometimes the company that we're keeping is just the things that are, we're holding in our hands. Brothers and sisters, that can be just as much the bad company we're talking about in our modern moment as anything else. And then last exhortation, we must remain resolute in fighting the sin of unbelief. 
And that's what he's getting at there in the end here. He is saying the sin of him, let us eat, drink, and die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Um, verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is, as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So Paul then ends this little section saying some extremely pointed uh, things to this church. Wake up. He has no shame, no fear of telling them you are drunk with the world. You're drunk with the world. You're in a drunken stupor. And I don't know if that could be a better advice for the modern church. And dare I say not, we're drunk on politics, we're drunk on cultural trends, we're drunk on obsession with our bodies and health, we're drunk on sex, sexuality, and gender identity, and you just add that list any way you want to. And the root of that, Paul says very clearly, is this. Some of you have no knowledge of God. If you had knowledge of God, you wouldn't be drunk on the world. If you had knowledge of God, you would and know who he is and what he has done and what he has accomplished. And then going back and connecting this to the resurrection, your fight against sin. So for Paul, the main primary sin that is at work here is the sin of unbelief. Unbelief in who God is, who he says he is, how he's revealed himself, the power he has demonstrated through his son Jesus through the resurrection and how that power now is in, is in, has been infused into us, has been, has been poured out into his people. See, all of our sin issues run downstream from a true knowledge of God, does it not? His saving work of his son, when it gets corrupted or gets twisted or gets truncated, that's where sin begins to take foothold. And when we don't work and see the application of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that grounds us in the resurrection life. All of that drives us towards sin and corruption. And so as we kind of finish up this morning, prepare for the Lord's table, I just pray this morning as we think about this, the importance of the resurrected life. Let's just speak it in this moment right here. This is an election year. Let's go ahead and get ahead of it, okay? What happens November 5th, in November is not all we have. It's not. Um, our, so our societies do not have all that we have. Our trends do not have all that we have. Our bodies do not have all that we have. Our health is not all that we have. Our money is not all that we have. Our jobs are not all that we have. Our hobbies are not all that we have. Our athletics are not all that we have. No, all that we actually have, brothers and sisters, is the resurrection of Jesus. That's all we have. And so as we prepare for the Lord's table today, and we pray and the team comes up here in just a moment, my prayer is that in our, is that as we delight in this table, we don't do so in a vain and futile way this morning. But we do it with renewed hearts in the power of the resurrection that's in us because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is igniting our hearts to the living Christ who one day will come and he will return and he will bring around full resurrection for us. And his power for his very own people will be secured forever and ever and ever. That's the reason we come to this table this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and let's pray, get prayer for our time at the table. 
Jesus, we come to you this morning and we just thank you for the power of the resurrection. We thank you for the centrality of it. We cannot remove that piece without fundamentally altering the gospel. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to be, have our hearts ignited by this truth this morning as we draw near to the table of the Lord, of our Lord Jesus, that has been offered to us, that we might share in his uh, body broken and his blood spilled for us. as a community of Christ, living with the Spirit in us and waiting upon you to return. It's all because of the resurrection. And we thank you for that. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Christ as Savior and King, God, may this day be the day that that, that that darkness begins to flee and the light of Christ begins to flood their lives and they bend and bow in faith and repentance to know Jesus. So, Father, we love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.